exactly. It's that sort of frontier mentality of, of you know, oh, we've used up all of this stuff. Well, let's find the next resource and the next frontier. And it's a story that just keeps telling the same. It's the same story over and over again. Explore, explore, but you've always got in your mind like exploit. Like we go and explore the planet in different ways, and but there's always someone going, oh, how can I use this? How can I make money out of this? How can I take that and and make it for me? Make it for us? You know? Yeah. There's no. It's just. We, there's no change to that story. That's what I find so tragic is that that humanity seems really, really resistant, really reluctant to go. Ooh, we could do this differently this time. You know, maybe yeah. maybe we don't just repeat, 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 and yeah. keep pushing into these new frontiers. And that's why I think the deep is so important. Like, why not think of regeneration, not just yeah. using up? You know, we've got. We just have to decide we want to do it. You know, or have been just figure we have to do it. I think we do have to, it has to become a necessity. We can change the stories. Things can be done differently. I mean, there are some examples. Like I kind of have this idea in the book that I would love just to be able to say, look, let's just leave the deep alone. Let's say no, yeah. no deep sea fishing, which is something else, which could get worse. It's already pretty bad. Um, deep sea mining, all those sorts of things. And just say, no, we don't do it. You know, and, and we kind of, we have done that with Antarctica. And I kind of draw this parallel that there was this incredible time back in the Cold War and countries were kind of like trying to grab, territorially grab the hearts of this amazing frozen continent because maybe there were minerals and maybe there's fishing and sort of resources to be had. And yet they basically decided, well, no, we're just going to set it aside for peace and science. And that, you know, is just that that does show me hope that we can we can maybe do things differently and humanity can just go okay there's other bigger things than us on this planet and we can just say we'll leave them alone hello everyone and welcome to intimacy with the world podcast i am dorita holm your host on this show where we explore what it really means to live a meaningful life and today I am speaking with Dr. Helen Scales. She is a marine biologist, writer and broadcaster. She's the author of the Guardian bestseller Spirals in Time and many other books about the sea and its creatures. The one I have been immersing myself in is called The Brilliant Abyss. True tales of exploring the deep sea, discovering hidden life and selling the seabed. Helen writes for National Geographic magazine, The Guardian and The New Scientist, among others, and she also teaches at Cambridge University. And today we are going to speak about all things related to the ocean, about how the ocean is such an important source for life to even be possible on this planet how the ocean is responsible for at least half of all the photosynthesis in the world, and how it cools down our planet so we can live here. And we also speak about the deep oceans, about its toxic hydrothermal vents, which are nevertheless the habitat for strange animals, and how life in the deep is generally very different than anything we otherwise are familiar with. And this is something that NASA scientists are, of course, interested in because it shows that life is not confined to a sunny, mild planet, which makes it more plausible that there could be life on other planets. But we do also talk about the dangers of all this new knowledge of the deep sea, because with all this exploration come ideas about what can we get out of the deep? Ideas like deep sea mining for precious metals and so on. 
So Helen and I even speak about what life actually is and where one being ends and another being begins. Enjoy our conversation. So Helen, welcome. I'm so glad to see you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. What a great pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I was so fascinated the first time that I heard you speak because your love of the oceans is so uh, it, it's so apparent. Immediately when you start speaking, it's like this woman loves the sea. And, you know, me growing up uh, in the Faroe Islands by the sea and then working on a fishing boat and then sailing with my own boat around the world for three years. The sea is like so close to my heart. So when I heard you, I was like, I love this woman. <laughs> I love you too, from the sounds of, I want to hear more about your adventures as well. It sounds incredible, the kind of things you've been up to as well. So it's wonderful. Yeah. So how, how did your love of the, why did you become a marine biologist? So um, nothing nearly as uh, romantic as setting off on a sailboat and traveling around the world. I'm deeply jealous of that. Maybe one day I'll still do that. Um, I, well, I was, um, I guess I was always a, a nature kid growing up. Mm. Um, uh, just generally loved being outdoors. Um, and I was very lucky. I grew up in a kind of a fairly landlocked part of England, but my family had a tiny little um, stone cottage down in Cornwall, which is the that um, the, the the county that sticks out its toe into the Atlantic. So it's almost the most um, maritime, I guess, part of the UK, um, especially the southern UK. Yeah. And um, so we would go there quite a lot um, just during school holidays. And we we were in the middle of the county on this sort of the edge of this wild moor, but we weren't so far from the coast. And we would go to um, these wild beaches as well. And I loved being there. And so I guess it kind of flowed into me yeah. at an early age from, from that stage of just, um, you know, just absorbing everything around me and, and going for wild explorations in a, in a place that was, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't where I was growing up, but it felt like that kind of yeah. retreat to nature that we got to do two or three times a year. And, um, you know, and I loved that. It was just part of life. It was just normal for me to have that, um, that place to be for, for long times. Um, and then I was, a, it was in my teens. I basically, I learned to scuba dive. Um, a friend and I decided uh, to take up classes um, in, in my local town. So it wasn't in the ocean we were learning in a swimming pool. Yeah. Um, and even that I loved just the sensation of breathing underwater. First time I did it was just like, what? I blew my mind. This, this sensation of breathing when, you know, I'm surrounded by water. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm as close to being a fish as possible. Um, and I absolutely love that. Um, and then the first time I got to do an open water dive and actually take, because we sort of trained for months and learned all the skills and how to survive and all that kind of stuff. And then finally got to go out into the open ocean. Oh no, it wasn't the open ocean. It was actually an inland lake that I first dived in. <laughs> but, um, at first it seemed like a terrible idea. It was freezing cold. Um, I couldn't see anything because it was really murky. And I just thought, oh God, I've got this wrong, haven't I? I don't, I'm, I'm not, not gonna be a diver. Let's just finish this and, and you know, apologize to everyone and just get on with it. <laughs> but um, then I saw this one, one little fish, just one, it was a normal, not particularly, you know, exciting thing. It was just a little silver fish, but it came into view. And I suddenly had this sense of being in its world. And, you know, the aquarium glass had fallen away. I was like taken into its three-dimensional space. And I just wanted to follow it and learn about its life and, well, and all of its friends and everything else and just immerse myself. I just had this sense of being there. And I guess from that point on, I knew that I wanted to spend as much time as I could 
being in the in the ocean uh you know once i got into the open ocean it got even more exciting um but that sort of sensation of putting myself into another world i think that's really the point where it suddenly i was like okay that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna go and become a marine biologist this is it. yeah it, it's it's so so strange how it's actually the most unless you go out to outer space uh, it's the most far away from our normal habitat and from our world that we can possibly go is into the ocean. I mean, we can sail on top of the ocean, we can still breathe our air, but to actually go underwater and to immerse yourself there. It's, it's uh, fascinating to hear how, how, how for you it was like an instinctive, I need to explore this. Yeah, it really was. And I, yeah, I think it's just that as you say, it's like, it's that boundary layer. Like I, I've always, yeah. it's, well, and I still very much enjoy being on the sea and doing various things that that brings, um, you know, the exploration that you can you can do on that surface layer. But I've always had that sense of wanting to put my head beneath that, le that line and yeah. see what's down there. And I know for some people that kind of hidden aspect of the oceans brings with it um, a kind of a fearful aspect, you know, the fearful yeah. ideas of the hidden things that you can't see. And therefore, you know, that could be a bit scary and you hear stories of, you know, yeah, sea monsters, monsters and exactly. But I've always kind of felt that that for me is just part of the big excitement of yeah. it because you never know what you're going to see yeah. and you have to get in to really have a good look, um, you know, and so that let sort of that aspect of personal discovery, you know, even though it's, it's not necessarily about going out and finding new species or new things that no one else has ever seen. But if you're seeing it for the first time, yeah. whatever it might be, no matter how small or impressively big and exciting, it's all wonderful. You know, yeah. I even almost love the small things that I find more exciting than the big obvious things. Like when you're really paying attention yeah. um, and finding that tiniest little gem-like creatures, and then it just feels like this little treasure that you have found um, yeah. wherever it might be. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I am I'm teaching a mindfulness course at the moment, but it's about uh, I'm teaching it in the Faroe Islands online. But it's it's mind using mindfulness as a tool to connect deeply with nature. So we speak about nature all the time. I I I, I had this course. I gave it in in English before that, um, okay. and there I was mostly using trees as the example of how you can connect to a tree and what a tree has mm -hmm. and does and what a tree is and so on, you know, the life force in the tree and all that. But in the pharaohs, there are no trees. So I can't use that as the obvious example because trees are, you know, you look at them and they're big and they're majest majestic and you know there's a lot of life inside of a tree and that it's capturing life force. But in the pharaohs, you only get grass like this tall. So I was like, what am I going to use? Like, that's not so inspiring, like it's small grass. So so I've, uh, but the ocean is everywhere. So I've, I've, I've just used the ocean. And then sometimes I was doubting and I was like, but is the ocean actually really alive? And then I heard something that you said that in one drop of ocean water, there are, I don't know, I think, it, I think you said millions of alive microbials in mm -hmm. one drop of ocean water, right? Yeah, I mean, the numbers are kind of just mind blowing. You could say yeah. whatever the number is, a thousand, a million, a billion. I mean, it's yeah, huge. it doesn't matter. Yeah, but yeah, it's you no. Know, and it's all those. it's the idea that I think in the ocean, I think the thing to really that that really I love is is, yeah, that every, all the way through from from the tiniest, you know, microbes uh, and then plankton and then everything that that relies on. It's, it's all completely connected. And so much of it 
we didn't even know was there until not so long ago because people weren't really looking for these tiny things. Yeah. And yet when we do, we find that it's so, all so important for the functioning of everything, you know, that this huge mass of life um, exists. And, and for a long time, we just didn't even realize. And now we see it's there, these connections between the, the organisms that are pulling down carbon, you know, the, the, the photosynthetic creatures that are, that are the basis of the food chains. And then all the cycling that's going on as well between yeah. different types of bacteria and microbes and yeah. making everything possible. So, so, so is the, is the sea actually doing more of the, the oceans that cause, cause the oceans, cover much more of the planet than the landmass does. So are the oceans photosynthesis, is it doing more photosynthesis than, than, than on land? It's about the same, actually. It's about the I same, I think that's yeah. the latest. It's, it's roughly equal, I think, yeah. in terms of if we're just specifically looking at or thinking about, yeah, the carbon that's pulled in and the oxygen that's released. Um, I think certainly oxygen, it's been estimated that roughly half of the oxygen that's produced comes from terrestrial plants and yeah. grasses and so forth. And then the other half comes from mostly little tiny things, but also seaweeds in the ocean that produce carbon to uh, produce oxygen. So, so, so those little tiny yeah. things, are they in the surface of the sea? Yes. Yeah. So, they, so are they those microbes that I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. So plankton, basically, which is a big yeah. term that covers a whole bunch of weird different types of creature some of them we would call algae but then also that's quite a general term but yeah small a lot of, a lot of them are single cells you really need a, a good microscope yeah. to see but they i mean they're beautiful to see that kind of talking about hidden like gems i mean the yeah. the shapes there uh, and the the yeah the sculptured kind of microscopic uh, nature of some of these things are, are just beautiful as well like diatoms they look like christmas tree decorations they're made <laughs> out of actually out of glass basically they're silica based little shells that they have and you get like triangles and stars anyway it looks like yeah, yeah like snowflakes even and yeah. they're they're tiny small things but they're so numerous that they do have incredibly important roles of yeah of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere releasing uh, oxygen yeah. and providing food for everything else i mean yeah. and this is in the, the, yeah in the surface layer so yeah the oceans cover seven tenths of the planets that's an enormous kind of surface layer of like life being made basically all the way across the top and of course there's stuff down below too yeah would there be more life do you think in the ocean than there is on top of the earth Ooh, that's a good question actually it's a very good question and i know there are some big kind of studies um that that kind of try to answer a question like that and mm. it's very hard to actually no because yeah. obviously that involves a lot of understanding of what's mm. there and how much there is um so off the top of my head i can't remember exactly what the kind of latest understanding of that is um but what i would say is i mean it's all it's all completely connected and i think that's what we're learning yeah. more and more is that what's happening in the oceans and the systems and the ecosystems there yeah. are, have such an important influence on the atmosphere and on yeah. and and on land and in both ways like the land influences the ocean the ocean influences yeah. the land yeah. whether it's like nutrients pouring off land and you know fertilizing areas and you know, providing the vital kind of nutrients that the ocean life needs and equally stuff kind of goes the other way as well like there are these i love this example of um these coastal forests in South America, I think kind of along the Pacific coast of South America. And they basically, I mean, I, I'd known for a while that you get these cloud forests that, that, that have, um, they get water basically from the air, from sort of the clouds around them. But there are some that get their nutrients 
from the air uh, and you know from particles in the air and that's nutrients that are coming out of the ocean so the ocean is basically kind of stuff is like evaporating up um forming these clouds which are feeding trees so there are trees that need the ocean and oh my you know, goodness. the connections are just extraordinary when you know how to look and find that everything is actually connected it's easy to yeah. say that but then when you find that it really is it, yeah. that blows my mind and, and that's what we that this is the kind of understanding that's so important in these times that we live in to know how interconnected everything is i heard uh, her her last name is sim simrad i think she's a, a plant a, a botanist in uh, at the i think it's a university of, of vancouver and they've discovered that there's salmon DNA in the trees in some of those forests that are quite removed, quite far away from even away from the from the river because the bears eat the, the salmon in the river and then that all comes into the ecosystem and they have found DNA of salmon inside the tree. And it's it's so beautiful, I think, to think of our planet and of life and of ourselves like that in that yeah, perspective absolutely. yeah i love those the idea as well of the salmon kind of migrating in from the ocean up the rivers to spawn and you know and in one sense you can look at that whole sort of way of, that they live their lives as being this kind of tragic kind of final single burst of reproduction and then they die but actually they're giving they are giving life to the, the forest and it's all as yeah. it, you know nothing is wasted there it's feeding the bears yeah. even you know the dead salmon that have spawned um and their bodies lie down you know on the riverbeds you know that is not going to waste their no. organisms and that you know all of those nutrients are going to go back into the system and yeah and feed yeah. the trees it's it's um it is beautiful and, and and understanding how all of that works and then as you say kind of realizing especially now when we change things and how it's so easy to not realize how we're disrupting these 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 networks that need to exist for things for ecosystems and species to remain healthy and functioning it, so yeah. if we don't understand what's happening it'd be really easy for us to you know yeah. not realize that we're messing stuff up basically yeah which 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 i can't help then bring up the acidity in the oceans it was actually your book that really made me understand <laughs> the whole i mean i'd heard about it and i knew about it but i didn't actually know how it actually functioned and so on and and the the dire consequences that's gonna have so could you just tell us about that cyclus, how it happens, why it happens, and what the consequences are of an, an ocean that's 30% more acidic than it used to be? Yeah, absolutely. So this is like, um, so ocean acidification is the, um, it's the silent, I guess, twin almost of climate change that mm. we are hearing a bit about more, but it is not spoken about so much as the, you know, the temperature changes, which are obviously really important. And we need to think about those things too. But the point is that a lot of the CO2 in the atmosphere that we're creating, that we're releasing from fossil fuel burning, everything else, it is absorbed into the oceans. That's just chemistry. It's, it's, there's nothing to be skeptical. Like there's no question about how that is happening. It just, it just happens. Water plus CO2 makes, um, basically makes an acidic solution. Yeah. Um, so in a way we have the oceans to thank for a lot of the CO2 that's been removed, like huge mm. amounts. Now, what is it? Something like, I, I think it's something like 90% of the CO2 we have released has ended up in the ocean, like a huge amount anyway has been absorbed so absorbed. if the oceans weren't there if this huge volume of, of water wasn't there we would already be suffering i and, and this i do have got right it's would be the the um the temperature increase would already have been about 30 degrees celsius oh without the oceans. so if the if the, the heat sorry it's 90 percent of the heat that the oceans absorb yeah. 
um, but also a whole lot of CO2 too. So without all of that, we'd be in big trouble if it wasn't for the oceans. But by doing that, it is causing troubles for the oceans themselves. So this acidification, yeah. this this input of CO2 and this sort of increase in, in these acids um, is causing trouble for basically, in the first instance, for all of the organisms that live, things that live in the ocean that have some kind of reliance on uh, calcium carbonate. So chalk, mm. basically, if they build their bodies, parts of their bodies out of this tough material. So the most, ob- most uh, obvious example are seashells. Yes. So mussels, oysters, that tough stuff that they're made out of, that's calcium carbonate. And that becomes, uh, what well, kind of starts to become unstable when the acidity changes, when it goes up. Yeah. So, um, I mean, especially one group of animals I write about, which um, are kind of one of these like hidden, sort of wonderful hidden mysteries in the ocean, are sea butterflies, these tiny little snails snails normally crawl around whether it's on land or in the sea but these guys have taken off into the water (laughs) column and they fly around (laughs) exactly instead of a foot they have these two little wings and they flit around and they're basically part of the plankton so so the zooplankton part of the animals the tiny animals that live all the way through the the water column and they're very important they're food for lots of other animals they can incredibly important part in that food chain in the food web um but they have these tiny delicate little shells that are very vulnerable to changes in in, in acidity. And we've seen this in studies in the lab. And also there are parts of the ocean that are, are kind of naturally more acidic from things like CO2 coming out of the seabed from um, kind of volcanic activity, that kind of thing. So there are places you can go. There's a place, yeah. like, for example, where you can say, oh, this part of the ocean is always a bit more acidic and look and see what's happening there. And you find that there are organisms that just find it hard to live. They find it hard to make their shells um, in those conditions of increasing acidity. So, so already there's like a whole lot of organisms with shells that are going to find it difficult as the sea you know already as you say the the oceans are already 30 percent more acidic than they were at the industrial you know last 200 years since the industrial yeah. revolution and the projections are that it will keep on going and, and i imagine that also for coral reefs it must be because they're exactly. very delicate right and same thing exactly yeah. calcium carbonate too is how yeah. they, they build their um their skeletons out of this uh, same substance so yeah that's another big worry for reefs i mean reefs are really one of the places in the planet i think we have to worry about the most because they've got warming seas to deal with which they don't like uh, at all um the acidification is also really bad for them overfishing everything's kind of piling in on them yeah and they're such important habitats that you know it's a, it's something like less than one percent of the surface of the ocean is coral reef but it's a quarter of all the life in the oceans live on reefs um, a quarter of all the life in the sea lives on coral reefs mm-hmm. as we know it there's still stuff we're finding obviously and there's other things to discover yeah. so so i can't help asking now now i'm gonna go deep into the ocean <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> because there are because normally we imagine coral reefs uh close to the to, to the surface because they need the the photosynthesis exactly. <laughs> but but there are also coral reefs deep deep down in the ocean right yes Exactly. And are those are those also being uh, being affected by by the heating of the ocean and the acidity? Yes, I think so. Yeah. So they're not um, photosynthetic, like they're kind of shallow water cousins. Um, they've lost those uh, little cells of algae inside them that the coral reefs are, are sort of reliant on for their food. The deeper corals don't have those. They have to catch their own food. But actually, there's around um, I think there's around five thousand species of corals that we know of, and over half of them live in the deeper, darker waters. So, you know, this is, it's like a whole other world of corals down there. And and are Um, they also equally colorful? Because when, often when we think about the deep ocean, we think, oh yeah, 
I've heard there's life down there, but it's probably pretty bleak. <laughs> yeah, bleak and boring and just, you know, blobfish and just yeah. other things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, corals in the deep are just as beautiful. I mean, they are colorful, which is weird because there's no light down there apart from lights that animals themselves make. And some corals actually do glow in the dark, which is pretty cool. Um, but they do have colors. There's pinks and yellows and reds. And, and I think those pigments are probably got some other function. Maybe they're yeah. sort of bad tasting probably something to do with defending themselves from being eaten by other creatures because in the deep sea it's not anything it's kind of anything goes because there's not a lot of food around there's no photosynthesis it's dark so there's not a you know there's a huge competition for eat or be eaten kind of thing so corals are probably defending themselves and yeah just um incredibly intricate structures and also the thing about corals in the deep sea i mean they grow places like sea mounts so these the oceans are full of enormous submerged mountains like some of them are volcanoes that are still active some of them are inactive you know there's 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 definitely hundreds of thousands of them possibly even millions of seamounts that are covered um some of them a lot of them are covered in corals yeah um and the thing about the deep sea corals is they can live for an incredibly long time so like, these are some of the longest lived organisms on the planet like, we're like thousands of years thousands of years exactly and mm -hmm. you find this out by taking samples and like, like a tree you can count the rings of um their growth yeah uh, and count how many years they're alive and use other kind of chemical traces to figure out their age. but is that then is that then is that animal or whatever you call the coral animal <laughs> is that one animal thousands of years old or is it the whole structure that's thousands of years old it's a good point they are slightly <laughs> cheating when it comes to the whole oldest animal thing because it is it, they're colonial so um they're polyps basically the, the kind of the basic unit of a coral is a polyp which is a tiny sort of flower-like structure yeah same as um if you've seen it um anemones perhaps a bit more familiar yeah people who've been to to say rocky shores and seen in tide pools no but don't worry i've seen the film nemo you know oh there you go exactly <laughs> So there's that very good bio marine biology education resource, which is finding the most excellent, <laughs> excellent resource, or Octonauts. Do you know the kids' series Octonauts? No, I don't know that one. <laughs> there's a brilliant TV series, which is like a marine biology kind of kids' show. And it's yeah. like the science, and it's really good. Like, you've yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, the polyps are, they grow in colonies. So they split apart and kind of reproduce um, more like plants, really, in that sense. You know, the plants yeah. can kind of they can break break off and make more copies themselves or they can also reproduce sexually too so yeah. you know corals do have the option of making eggs and sperm and then larvae drift off and make another colony somewhere else but the colonies themselves will kind of reproduce and and yeah build together these incredible structures which which can yeah. themselves can live for thousands of years so it's not it's not the same as saying all oh, this you know, Greenland shark has been alive for 500 years, which is what we think some of those amazing sharks can live for. But equally, I think it, how wonderful that, because what we know is that, that it's a colony of coral that's stuck in place. So it's been on that spot. Yeah. On that coral, you know, on that seamount or, or wherever it might be for thousands of years. Yeah. And, you know, and just think back in terms of like human history, what was going on when this coral was still right there. Yeah. And also, I think it kind of challenges our perception of life because we tend to think of life of like, I am alive and this is me and I end here and I begin here and this is me. But life is much more complex like that. It's not life as like, for example, reading your book to seeing the symbiosis between all the different life forms kind of makes you wonder, well, maybe life isn't like like me, Dorita, I am this life. I mean, I, I even know that more than half of my body are other beings, right? <laughs> 
microbes and what, what do I know, fungi is living inside of me. Exactly. So it kind of challenges yeah. also the, the notion of what is, what is life even. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so dependent, like so many, yeah, living things, whatever we want to define them as, like that entity that is a, you know, a coral or a shark or a human or a bacteria, you know, um, we are so dependent in so many ways on everything else around us. There's no yeah. way of surviving without those other things. No, and, and sometimes so you can't really quite separate them out. No. It's, it's almost like our definition of being, like one being is almost too small, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I mean, let's just take corals as that example we've been talking about. Yeah. The ones that live in the shallows that have these algae living inside them and if they get too hot those algae are spewed out and that's coral bleaching as we know it yeah. and then that's kind of it you know that's that's game over for that coral so you, you know they cannot survive yeah. apart um so that's you know very simplistic you know i, yeah. I think beyond that it becomes much more complex and and um and sort of involved but but yeah, where do we draw these boundaries? Well, why, yeah. do, why do we draw those boundaries? Yeah, why do we draw yeah. them? And I think this is what's dawning on humanity now, no? And it needs to dawn on us that it's also mm -hmm. interconnected. And this brings me to, I, I love the, so, I was, so the far, first part of your book is all about exploring all those creatures that live down at, I mean, even in the Mariana grave, I remember first time I heard about that, that's close to New Zealand, right? um it's north yeah north? it's like that western pacific there's tons of great big trenches like yeah. from japan all the way down to new zealand there's a whole load and yeah apart from marianas there's uh like a whole bunch of other deep trenches that are beyond ten thousand meters deep yeah amazing and yeah. there's life down there and i i i when i was reading your book i was like but how why doesn't she explain to me how can they stand so much pressure for example <laughs> Even the even those uh, the 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 jelly things, all the jellyfish and all that, they probably don't live down that deep. But they're at three thousand, and are are there jelly beings at three thousand? Yeah, yeah, and more. I mean, they recently filmed uh, an octopus uh, swimming around uh, in the Mariana Trench, and I forget if it was six thousand. Yeah, um, corals can be found at eight thousand meters. How, um, how calm it doesn't, yeah. I mean, for example, if, if we would go down there, wouldn't mm. our eyes just got, get like, uh, what are you, <laughs> squished into our skull or something? <laughs> I mean, so actually, no. I mean, the thing with pressure is, yeah, I mean, no doubt, like that is the big thing about it. once you get into the deep sea beyond any distance of depth, really beyond a thousand meters even, um, it's enormously high pressure. yeah because like, you said it's like the equivalent of a huge big uh, african elephant sitting on top of you like, not just on top of you but like each uh inch of your body each yeah. square inch is another elephant like that's yeah. how much pressure it is um and but the thing with pressure is it's like well for us like uh we obviously our lungs would collapse very quickly so i think i give the example of um diving whales and sperm yeah. whales and how actually that but that's kind of part of how they're adapted to going so deep is that they're like okay fine my lungs collapse because the pressure on the air squashes them in but all of their oxygen is in their blood and in their muscles yeah. so they actually don't need their lungs and then they just yes. come back up and that's fine um so we'd have to do away with that but Actually, the pressure gets so high that it even, isn't even about which bits of your body, which organs are going to get squashed. It's like your cells are going to get so much pressure that they won't work anymore unless yeah. you're adapted to living in the deep. And things are. And that's what I love yeah. about, uh, I guess that's what I love about biology. It's like you, you can find an organism, you can find a creature living somewhere that you would think, how on earth is it is doing? Life how is it? A, how can it be that it can survive? <laughs> in these conditions whether it's yeah extreme like the extreme high pressure of the deep and then you know scientists 
look and they go, well, hang on. Actually, look, it's got this gene which produces this molecule which protects it from that pressure and it stops its enzymes from grinding to a halt and being bent out of shape. And the more you have of this chemical, the deeper you can go. And it's actually this lovely kind of relationship between you can almost measure this chemical and guess how deep that animal came from because ah, of the I amount see. of stuff it has. Yeah. And, you know, and so so evolution has brought about all these incredible solutions to yeah. living anywhere because it almost feels like life will have a go, you know, like wherever. Yeah, wherever. Is of light or, you know, no food or no light or, you know, huge pressure or incredibly high temperatures or whatever it is, life has found a way. And uh, how, what do you make yeah. of that? What, what, why is that? What do you, what do you, you as a biologist, what do you think of that? I, I mean, I'm like, what is life then? I mean, what, yeah, why? It, yeah, why? I don't think there is an answer to why. It no. Just, it is, you know, it's just, um, it's, uh, it's just seems to be something, I guess, you know, it's back to this idea of what, what is life and what are individuals. It, I, and I feel like part of it is just, if there's a place to be, somewhere on uh, certainly on this planet maybe other ones too we don't know yet about yeah. if there is any other life on other other planets but let's just talk about the earth but if there's a space to occupy living things will tr will will have a go <laughs> living there you know and and because of time and because of the way that you know generations will pass by and there'll be these differences in how an organism can live then it, it might survive and then yeah. it will, you know, it'll reproduce. It just shows us, I think, the power of change and how, you know, adaptations to different conditions will, will happen yeah. no matter what, you know, what the challenges are thrown at, thrown at those, those living yeah. things. Yeah. Can you so. tell us about the, 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 the ones that don't live by photosynthesis, mm. but, but would you call, do you call it chemosynthesis, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or chemosynthesis. <laughs> chemosynthesis, yeah, exactly. I should just say as well, I don't know if you can hear, but that rainstorm has just arrived. Oh, it has it's arrived very loud. the rainstorm. <laughs> yeah, uh, really coming down. Anyway, so if you can hear that in the background, it's just the rain, don't worry. Um, so yeah, so uh, chemosynthesis, I call it the dark alternative to photosynthesis. And this, yeah. we didn't know, nobody knew about this until, um, the year I was born, 1977, was when we discovered, I didn't, I was just born, um, <laughs> uh, life on hydrothermal vents, these incredible, again, really extreme places in the deep sea. We're talking miles beneath the surface, though, huge pressure, but also not, you know, um, uh, highly toxic. These are kind of hot smokers, um, hot springs in the, in the bottom of the sea, um, boiling hot water, like hundreds of degrees pouring out of these vents uh, with these big tall chimneys that are built, these black smokers, we call them. And geologists were originally interested in this and they went down in deep diving submersibles expecting just to see kind of a volcano type thing down there. And they looked out the window and they were like, ah, uh, it's covered in life. Um, what on earth is this about? Why is stuff living here? Um, and yeah, because they don't only spew up uh, water, they spew, hmm. spew out chemicals as well from the interior of the earth, right? Yeah, exactly. So what happens is like seawater basically kind of filters down through cracks in the seabed. And these are yeah. places where there's very thin um, crust. So it's sort of really hot and there's lots of lava and magma not too far down beneath the sea's surface, you know, only maybe a mile or so. Yeah. And it gets heated up by that and then picks up all sorts of chemicals from the rocks and it's yeah. used back up to the surface and pours out. And yeah. it's hot, it's hot and it's toxic. It's got no ox very little oxygen. Um, uh, I think it's very, I think it's quite acidic as well. Um, full of things like hydrogen sulfide and methane, like just kind of nasty, toxic chemicals. Yeah. So really not a place for life. Again, like wh why would life do that? Why would life not just go, mm, you know what? 
going to just avoid all of that and go and live, you know, in the nice sunny shallows. Um, but it did. And the mind blowing thing that came out of that. So we find these incredible life forms there, like giant tube worms, worms that are bright red with, uh, and they live inside these long tubes and they're taller than I am. Um, clams that are size of dinner plates. Uh, and since then, lots, so many other discoveries, hairy armed crabs called Yeti crabs, which are very uh, close to my heart because they're just so cute and fuzzy. Um, octopuses, all sorts of things live on hydrothermal vents. But it was just after that first discovery that basically a really smart scientist, um, this wonderful woman, she was actually a grad student at the time uh, in America. And she was like, well, how is this stuff, you know, what's going on with this? How is all this stuff surviving in such high numbers as well? Because the deep sea, you know, there's lots down there, but often it's quite sparse. It's not yeah. huge hotspots, like a coral reef of life, but these vents really were. And she basically worked out that they're full of, um, so she started out with these giant tube worms and she worked out that they're full of microbes, bacteria, that are not photosynthetic, they are chemosynthetic. They are using chemicals from the water to make food. So they don't need sunlight. This an ecosystem completely cut off from light. And no one knew that existed. It was like a total alternative way of living. But that, that, that is the that only, it's the only form of life that can do that. It's a, that's a complete different kind of, of life, right? That's not yeah, based yeah. on photosynthesis because we wouldn't survive without photosynthesis. Ni neither would most of the fish in the ocean mm -hmm. or any kind of life on the planet, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like that's how up until that point, basically biologists were like convinced, well, we, you know, all we knew of, all, all the biologists knew of at that point was that life on earth relies on energy on, from the sun coming down yeah. being harnessed by plant life of various kinds yeah. and then ultimately feeding everything else. And yeah. here we were, this like hidden world in the dark that no one had known about that doesn't need the sun. It just needs chemicals. And that's how that ecosystem is, is, is kind of driven that's the basis of all of this so yeah. these are bacteria that either live a lot some of them live like on the vents themselves and there are things like crabs that will just eat the bacteria but most exciting i think are the ones that have these symbioses they have these microbes living inside them some have special um kind of organs where they they house these microbes like one of my favorites recently discovered is a thing called the scaly foot snail they come from the indian ocean from vents there and they have these amazing shells that are made out of iron and no one yeah. nothing else no other shells made, are made out of iron this is a very weird thing indeed and they have these feet covered in scales no like snails with scales on their feet this is yeah. bizarre and they have these bacteria inside them that that are chemosynthetic they're helping that's how they get their food that you know they it leaks out of those bacteria and that's how they get um they feed themselves but at the same time the bacteria produce this toxin well they produce sulfur yeah. um by using hydrogen sulfide they then produce kind of sulfur as a byproduct and that's toxic to snails so what are they doing how is that working and scientists looked at those little scales on their feet and worked out that actually inside of those are these tiny tiny tubes these microscopic nanoscopic tubes that act like tailpipes on a car and draw this <laughs> sulfur out of the body and like an exhaust pipe it's licensing it's exhaust pipe exactly so they've evolved to survive in this ridiculous condition of you know chemicals and toxins and and all this stuff going on um but their bodies kind of deal with that they have these microbes it keeps them alive they keep their bacteria alive everyone's happy it's, yeah I love yeah that. yeah so i i i really wanted to transition into which is so interesting that was like the first part of your book is about all the life in that deep ocean which is so fascinating because it's so different than than how we normally think about about life but then you talk about also especially at the end of the book about how you know how the human just wants to expand and it wants to one thing is that it wants to explore 
but then it wants to extract anything it can from wherever it can. And I've, I had never really heard about this before that, uh, the, that the technology that we want to save us from climate change, which are like solar panels or windmills or battery driven cars, electric cars, mm -hmm. they rely on those metals and, and that, that there aren't that many off on the, on the surface of the earth. And that now people are thinking about mining in the deep sea. So can you just tell us about that whole paradigm that's going on? Yeah, absolutely. And um, what and that could a, mean. It's a really important time to be thinking about this. There's some very important discussions going on right now in terms of deep sea mining. So you'll see it coming up um, and some new stuff might be uh, on the horizon in the next few weeks. So it's a really, um, I don't know, you know, whenever you're listening to this, uh, check out the news for deep sea mining and you might find some stuff which I can't tell you about right now, but things are changing. So basically, yeah. um, I mean, people, we've known for a long time that there are not just biological riches in the deep sea, but that there are mineral and metal riches. And so um, on hydrothermal vents that I've talked about on seamounts and also across these huge areas of abyssal plains, these sort of big flat open areas of the ocean, yeah. there are rocks um, which are referred to as nodules. They look a bit, they look kind of like lumps of coal, basically these dark rocks, and they are very rich in metals. These actually form over millions and millions of years yeah. from the water itself. So actually probably, you know, 10 so millions of years ago, a shark dropped a tooth or it was a little chip of a shell or something and that formed the nucleus for these uh, nodules, which form a bit like pearls and then metals settle onto them and grow very, very slowly. Um, and we've known about these for a long time, like the, in the 19th century, um, a big expedition around the world, um, the Challenger expedition was like the big first oceanic expedition, learning about the oceans and they found these things and people kind of thought of them as this weird um, curiosities, almost like moon rocks, like these weird things yeah. that people have found. Um, and it wasn't until later um, that some people started thinking, oh, maybe we could, there's loads of these, perhaps we could bring them up and use, you know, and mine the, these metals. And there was initial interest in that in the 60s and 70s that eventually died away. The technology wasn't quite there yet. And also the prices of these metals meant it didn't quite work out. Move forwards to now to maybe say five or six, seven years ago. And there's a new interest in, uh, in mining, specifically in mining uh, nodules. Also, some people are looking at mining hydrothermal vents and, and mining the, the, the surface of seamounts. And it's one, uh, one reason it's being considered is that there are particular metals that are used in some forms of these technologies that you've mentioned. Yeah. Um, so for example, cobalt is one of these really contentious metals. At the moment, the sources of cobalt on land are not nice. There's no way around it. Most of it's in the Congo. It's being mined by enormous industrial mines, obviously, but also by really terrible artisanal mines, which are really harmful yeah. for human health. And that is a, appalling stuff is happening and something needs to be done about that. Um, and cobalt is an, is an element that's currently used in quite a lot of electric car batteries. So a lot of these companies that want to mine the deep sea are saying, well, look, hey, why don't we take it from the deep instead of the mm. land mining? This would be better. Um, and there's, there's so much going on with this. And this yeah. is one thing I have kind of gone into more detail in the book. And I guess the kind of the short yeah. parts of, of the discussion that I found, well, I mean, one thing is that there's this assumption that there's nothing living down in the deep and that that doesn't matter. And so, of course, we are learning more and more about how rich life is in the ocean and how everything is connected. And that deep sea mining, the impact of that could be 
uh, could be catastrophic and it could be yeah. permanent, you know, on the sorts of timescales that we're interested in human time. And also we just don't know, I imagine, what the consequences would be exactly. because we don't, the web of life is way too complicated for mm. us to know. Mm -hmm. And we don't know that much about the deep oceans. Exactly. So and and moment, what its function is in this whole biodynamic uh, exactly. web of life, right? Yeah, exactly. So we're still learning so <laughs> much. So to be able to say, and there, there are companies coming out now saying, oh, well, it's better to mine the deep. It's not going to cause deforestation. And who cares about the deep sea, basically? Mm. Um, you know, there's nothing down there, which is just not true. Um, so... And I think the other part thing, I mean, I don't necessarily think we should get stuck into the discussion of, um, of uh, the technologies, although no, I think that no. is really interesting. But basically, there's nothing to say that we do have to keep still using cobalt. I'm just going to keep on that example. There are other metals, too, that are kind of similar. But um, it actually turns out that there are other ways to make yeah. car batteries without cobalt. And a lot of companies are already doing that. Yeah. Even, you know, Tesla, the big leaders in car yeah. making, electric car manufacturers are making batteries that have less or even no cobalt. And they're mainly doing it because cobalt prices are all over the place. Yeah, it's too, it's too high. It sense. Yeah. But equally, well, why not use that as a way to say, well, we don't need the deep cobalt. We can find alternatives. And I think if anything, this whole pandemic and the amazing uh, advances that we've had in, in vaccines and in being able to say, we've got a problem, we need to solve it. We've got really smart people who can figure this out and we'll do it and we'll innovate yeah. and we'll make a chip and we'll, we'll do what needs to be done to solve these problems. And I really think the same could happen with the technologies we need to stop using fossil fuels. Mm. You know, the technologies we're talking about in a car battery, kind of the same as the ones that were invented um, 30 years ago to have like a handheld camcorder for this rechargeable battery that we use. We can innovate. You know, people, have, we've got incredible minds around the world that can come yeah. up with solutions that aren't going to harm the planet and that aren't going to harm people at the same time. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think what you're saying right now <clears throat> is really really important because it's like there needs to be a paradigm shift in i mean this just let's just extract it from the earth and not put anything back i mean that's that's fine and now that there isn't uh, there's nothing left to extract because we spent it all well no problem let's just go into the deep ocean and it's, it's like the whole paradigm is completely faulty i mean yeah. if we want people to be here and i mean i have children and they're going to have children and if they're going to have children i mean we can't that it's just not sustainable to just keep extracting and i mean what where are we going with it? it's an, a really strange paradigm eh? and it's the very very strange exactly it's that sort of frontier mentality of of you know oh we've used up all of this stuff well, let's find the next resource and the next frontier and it's a story that just keeps telling the same it's the same story over and over again. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. Like an explore, explore, but you've always got in your mind like exploit. Like we go and explore the planet in different ways, and but there's always someone going, "Oh, how can I use this? How can I make money out of this? Exactly. And how can I take that and and make it for me? Make it for us? You know? Yeah. There's no. It's just. We, we, there's no change to that story. That's what I find so tragic. Is that that humanity seems really, really resistant, really reluctant to go. Ooh we could do this differently this time you know maybe yeah. maybe we don't just repeat 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 and yeah. keep pushing into these new frontiers and that's why i think the deep is so important um aside from of course we need to understand the impact of this whole new industry before it gets going and and that's why a lot of people um a lot of countries a lot of ngos are calling for a moratorium on deep sea yeah. mining I mean, I personally think we should never do it but um but you know, at least wait for 10 years while we figure out what's happening 
but you know, I think from my point of view, even that's my point is we, we shouldn't need to, no. we should be able to get our house in order in the sh- shallow seas and on land, figure that out, get sustainable in those places. And there's no need to go into the deep and we can just leave it be and leave it be as this incredible resource for everybody now and into the future. Like you say, it's not just about us no. now who are alive here. It's everyone who comes after us and who's going to look back and say, why did you do that? Why did you make that decision to go and start this new thing, which is going to be so hard to undo once it's started, once it becomes accepted mm. and normal, everyone's going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, mm. like we do with, to be honest with landmining, like we, yeah. I don't really know the full extent of what landmining is like, and I'm sure it's awful. Yeah. And we need to figure that out. And mining the deep sea is not going to solve that. It's no. And, and also, as, and as you were saying, all these minerals, whether it be land mining or, or the, 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 the things, you, those rocks on the, on the ocean, they take millions of years to build up. And, and we're just going to take them out and use them for us. It's, yeah. it's, it's, um, it's an amazing paradigm eh? and it's, it's mm. so important. I think it's so interesting these times that we live in because it's like, I, I think lots of people are thinking, how are we going to think about how we're going to live? And I don't mean, oh, let's just go back to the stone age and not have technology, but it's so interesting to put our, as you said, our creative minds to, okay, how can we do this? And leave the planet in, in an even better shape than when we when we when it was given to us. No, that that's oh the gosh, interesting yes. question. Absolutely. Why not think of regeneration, not just yeah. using up? You know, we've got we just have to decide we want to do it. You know, or have the just figure we have to do it. I think we do have to. It has to become a necessity, and that's going to take a while to come through. Um, but. You know, if we can, but, but it's it's pretty it. sad that it has to be a necessity before we oh, do it. That we can't no, do it, it out of love or something, yeah, <laughs> or out of yeah, caring. No, maybe I could be more hopeful on that. Perhaps we will <laughs> figure it out before it just becomes so awful that we have to. But you know, I guess maybe we can start to just to look at look around ourselves more and just say, look, we can change the stories. Things can be done differently. I mean, there are some examples. Like I kind of have this idea in the book that I would love just to be able to say, look, let's just leave the deep alone. Let's say no, yeah. no deep sea fishing, which is something else which could get worse. It's already pretty bad. Um, deep sea mining all those sorts of things and just say no we don't do it you know and and we kind of we have done that with antarctica and i kind of draw this parallel that there was this incredible time back in the cold war and countries were kind of like trying to grab territorially grab the hearts of this amazing frozen continent because maybe there were minerals and maybe there's fishing and sort of resources to be had and yet they basically decided well no we're just going to set it aside for peace and science and that you know is just that that does show me hope that we can we can maybe do things differently and humanity can just go okay there's other bigger things than us on this planet and we can just say we'll leave them alone maybe do you see that because because you're a, a very prolific marine biologist so you get called on to speak at many places and like people know you through your books and through your appearances in the media and so on so do do you see uh, an increasing interest in other narratives that's a good question. I, I think so. I think there's certainly an increasing, I think there's at the moment there's an increasing interest just generally in nature and our connections to nature. Um, and I think that is strengthening amongst a lot of people, certainly in, in Europe, I would say, or certainly in, in I see it amongst sort of British audiences when I go and speak to people and, you know, you hear a lot about people, you know, almost just in the last year as well, during the pandemic, that, that a lot of people have reached out to try and make those connections to 
to wild spaces you know we're increasingly interested in in wild swimming i mean just ways in putting ourselves i guess it's back to kind of putting yourself into nature and having that experience of things so i think maybe for me i feel that that is that is changing um how much that is sort of filtering through to the upper levels of decision makers and so forth is a little harder to say i mean there's a lot of talk you know, I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what, for example, happens later this year with the, the next round of meetings for the climate change discussions, yeah. which hopefully are going to be happening in person here in the UK. We'll see what happens. Um, you know, and I think those are going to be the real kind of test points of like, are we really going to start getting on with this? You know, getting on with fixing these these problems. You know, now at least America's back on track and we can have proper negotiations about those sorts of things again. I think that I think this year is going to be a really interesting one to see where that kind of mm. where the direction of travel is going at a bigger scale. But equally, I think we have to hold on to those individual changes with ourselves as well. I think that's really important as a kind of place to start that we can as individuals start to see why all of this matters for our, you know, for our own mental health for our own health and for everything else as well i think that's a great place to start yeah make those bigger changes yeah yeah i love that you say that that for our own well-being not just out of necessity but just like uh i, I can't thrive in a, in a in a planet with no trees or with where the ocean is full of acid and we're just killing off everything it's uh, it, it's not a world I want to live in. No, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing a you're doing such a great job at trying to promote another narrative, which is so needed right now. And oh, I love yeah yeah, and I love how you you're like we can explore and and let's keep this curiosity, but we can explore it without having to uh, take advantage of this thing for our own um for for yeah, for our own gains exactly yeah. i mean i think that again is a real mental shift that we need that i i get increasingly seeing that i think um i mean see there's always people who've been curious and just want to know just to know what's there just because um but if we can break away that kind of cast aside the side of humanity that's always wondering well how can we use it and really come just really try and give up this central just this belief that the the earth and its resources is, are put there for us for this one species out of yeah. millions why is it just us that we have to you know grab everything and say you know it's not no use to me unless i can prove it's valuable i mean so in some ways i mean i almost had to toe that line a little bit in the books i write because there are people who want to know okay well you know why should i care about the deep sea what's in it for me so i tell them there is a lot in it for you there's lots yeah. of less less harmful benefits like new you know inspiration for new medicines in the deep and i genuinely believe we are going to find some really powerful uh new treatments for for conditions and cancers and, and all sorts of things we'll find them in the deep i'm sure of it um but even if we didn't have that i think like yeah i want to be able just to say just just because just because yeah. it's there you're not going to get to go to the deep ocean um none of us are really like a few lucky people get to go for a few hours at a time but that's it you know but it's it's there and that's what matters yeah um, would you personally go into one of those things that would send you like six thousand meters down would you get into one of those oh yeah <laughs> really Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I say that um, being some, actually, I'm quite claustrophobic. So I think I'd have to like do a lot of, yeah, there'd be a lot of mindfulness going on to calm myself down. But oh my gosh, yeah, I'd love to. I would love to see it. even just to know that I, and, and to, you know, to know that I'd done that and been there. It's like going into space, you know, 
Yeah. I just, oh, like just now that you're mentioning space, I thought that was so interesting what you said about those animals that live by the, those uh, hydro vent, the, those hydrothermal mm -hmm. vents, and that don't use photosynthesis but mm -hmm. use the chemosynthesis. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that we've always thought about life on other planets needing photosynthesis to be able to to have life. So so finding this chemosynthesis means that there's probably life in other places, right? It, it certainly raises the chances of it. Yeah, I think it shows us. And I mean, you know, NASA scientists are really looking hard into the deep ocean to understand how things live here and how life maybe even began in the deep ocean. That's another big area I talk about in the book oh. is that maybe life began down there, yeah. possibly even on hydrothermal vents originally, like billions of years ago. It just it gives us clues as to what to look for on other planets, um, you know, it, it, and it shows what's possible and what life can be. It comes back to this idea of what is life, you know, like, but life is not big hairy creatures walking around eating plants from a, a sun that, that fed them necessarily. It's not just that. It's all these other different ways of living in conditions that are wildly different from that. So why not? I mean, yeah, we spent this time kind of a lot of the, the sort of thoughts about life and on other planets is like, we're trying to find a planet that's like ours, you know, that's the kind of the Goldilocks idea of it's just right, you know, we need just the right amount of temperature and light and so on and everything else. Well, why not look now? It's like, well, anything goes, it could be anything it could be any of these weird, different conditions on different moons and different planets could just as well have been a place where little cells first sparked into life and started making more of themselves and reproducing and then off it goes i kind of have this sense that i don't know that once life goes once there's a you know there's a thing that we call a living cell that can make more of itself and 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 survive you know on and on and on you kind of you've lit the touch paper really and then it's just like yeah. off it goes like that's when life goes and explores what's available and it figures you know and adds it over the generations these weird new ways of surviving pop up and you yeah. find stuff living on hydrothermal vents or miles beneath the surface of the seabed or whatever it might be you know and who knows where it'll go yeah but uh, another uh, another thing that i've read this is not in your book but i'm just curious since you're a biologist and you're so curious yourself do scientists actually know I mean, this is a weird question. What is life? Now, yeah, it's not a, it's a very good question because how do you define that? Yeah, as a, I remember very, like almost the first biology class I ever had as a kid at high school, you know, and we were like, what is this biology thing? Like, you know, up until then it was just science, right? We just did science yeah. classes. And suddenly it's like, well, you go off and you do chemistry or physics or biology and they're different rooms, different teachers. And I remember the teacher sitting us down and being like, so what is life? <laughs> what, how yeah. do you define it? And so at that point, I guess there were like lists of things we were told. It's like, like self-replication is part mm. of it. It's like a, it's a thing that can make more of itself, that can take raw materials in and reproduce itself. Mm. So whether that's a single cell, like a bacteria that can split and make another bacteria, or whether it's a human being who can make copies of themselves, like yeah. different versions of themselves, but you know, we can reproduce and make make more people. So that's but, a key but, thing. But would would we, we wouldn't be able to make life in a laboratory without something that's already has life. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it comes down to, I mean, it kind of comes down to really like the ton of nitty gritty of it is like at a molecular level of things like, uh, you know, being able to, it's like, it's all about how 
DNA is like being replicated. It's, it's also yeah. being copied. It's like that's as a molecule. Yeah. It's almost like DNA, I think, is the key. Certainly to life on this planet, who knows about anywhere else. Yeah. But the ability of that code yeah. to, again, it reproduces itself. So it's almost like the reproduction part is sort of part of it. It's sort of like, yeah. here's the messages for how to make one of these life. cells. Yeah. And but do you think that you could actually in a laboratory, like if we put this together with this yeah. and this, then it'll become I mean, alive? Yeah, I mean, people are trying. I mean, so for like, so for example, this idea that life began on hydrothermal vents, and the theory is that, and we don't know for sure, but this is one theory is that basically uh -huh. inside of um, the structure of these big tall chimneys that form with this this water that comes up and some of it settles out, and it forms like this kind of meshy, almost like a honeycomb structure. And one of the theories is that those little tiny physical, like rocky. Um, uh, structures like yeah think of it like a honeycomb could have been like the template for a living cell and what you need for life in that sense is stuff i don't yeah it's 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 hard to grasp but basically it's it's um it's how molecules move and energy is generated yeah. so it's it's about kind of i mean these are theories and there's a, a wonderful book actually by a guy called um Uh, Nick Lane, I think it's called a vital question. It's a whole book about it's very it's actually quite technical, but it's like how could life have started on vents and he talks about energy and how um, you need to generate energy by sort of passing it's how, at a molecular level, how energy can be generated and then used to make Uh, more cells mm -hmm. and that these structures within vents could do that and so what he has done this guy Nick Lane and he's at UCL in London is he's he's made in his lab like an um an artificial vent or like he's kind of recreated the conditions of the kind of vent we think might have been where life started and he's put together some of these basic ingredients which we think could have also have been like uh -huh. some kind of basic elements uh, and compounds that were uh, we think available in the primordial earth and he has made proto cells like very very simple cells so basically a kind of a uh, a bag a sort of a, a blob of um <laughs> with a membrane around the outside they've kind of spontaneously formed these membranes oh. with the sorts of conditions that are starting to look like what we think those early cells might have looked like so so in a way yeah he has shown yeah. at least some of the steps towards you could create those sorts of living cells from basic ingredients that wow. might have been what was available and it's like it's all about sort of it, ph is very important um yeah 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 i understand that the chemistry must be extremely yeah. complex so that's yeah. why but i didn't yeah. know that it was actually possible to make yeah, life yeah, yeah. In, in a laboratory so that's quite interesting so it's yeah. sort of it's unpicking these ideas of how we could have done you know and people have for a long time tried to do that you know there have been other theories too about how life began like a sort of it was it in a shallow warm freshwater pool maybe that was another thing and people have done that too and kind of yeah. you know got soupy mixtures in the lab of and and uh, maybe <laughs> lightning bolts was what was the energy for it and so people have tried all sorts of things and me you know people have made like proteins the early kind of the important building blocks of life as well we've been able to make some basic kind of amino acids and things in different yeah. ways um so it's yeah i mean no one's yet kind of created a whole new self-replicating like microbe or anything. no like, but, no but something that one would consider no. alive like a cell or no, um... i don't know i th certainly not like oh you know we made it it's a thing like no but, but steps towards that yeah yeah how interesting yeah helen thank you so so much for for taking the time to speak to me and 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 my people <laughs> it's such a pleasure i'm sure we could carry on and i you know i just it's been lovely thank you so much for such thoughtful questions and what a wonderful discussion 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Helen Scales. I must confess that as a child, I always wanted to be a marine biologist. And all the mystery held by the deep oceans, this completely other, unknown world has always fascinated me. And I love the way Helen's enthusiasm and knowledge brings this secret world alive in my imagination. It has really reminded me to nurture that fundamental childlike curiosity about absolutely everything, to expand my horizon and let myself be in awe of all the wonders of life. If you want to know more about Helen and her books, you can visit her website www.helenscales.com and you will find that link in the show notes. And if you felt inspired or learned something in this conversation, then I greatly appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast. You're, of course, also very welcome to review and rate the podcast on Apple Podcast. And lastly, if you feel a bit stuck in your life or experience a lack of clarity, or perhaps there's a fear of stepping into your true potential, then you are welcome to go to my website, www.doritaholm.com and schedule a free 25-minute one-on-one with me to see if I would be a good fit to accompany you on the journey into more wholeness and courage. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode. Until then, be well. Mm-hmm.